Acts 2 is where we're going to be in a minute. Uh, my, my, uh, I think my favorite contemporary comedian is this guy. Uh, his name is Tim Hawkins. If you don't know Tim, go home and Google Tim. Go to YouTube, type in Tim Hawkins, and enjoy yourself. Uh, it's extra nice that uh, he is also a, a Christian and, uh, by the way, a terrific musician. Now, one of the bits he does is about the atheist megachurch. He imagines what one would be like, okay, and uh, what songs would they sing in an atheist church. Songs like, shout to the void all the earth let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to nothing. <laughs> and how about kids' songs? Children's songs in the atheist church. Songs like, um, no one loves the little children, all the children of the world. No one listens when you cry, no one hears your lullaby. No one loves the little children of the world. Atheist, atheist hymns. What about an atheist Christmas movie? You know of any of those? You could pitch this to Hallmark Channel, The Coincidence on 34th Street. That's my suggestion. The book of Acts is an account of some amazing history, isn't it? So many fantastic events in this book. How many of them are coincidences? <laughs> you see, this is where the Christian mind and the unbelieving mind go in entirely different directions. We read the book of Acts, really any accurate historical account, and, and we see the hand of God consistently, constantly at work. Is God the world's greatest spectator sitting in his box seat observing all that takes place, or is he in fact the primary actor in the drama and a drama that he wrote and is now producing and doing so for our joy and his glory. Uh, we in this place will take the latter approach. Today we focus on the book of Acts and see that it is impossible to understand it if you do not grasp that we serve a sovereign God, a God who has a plan for the universe and is executing that plan. Christians can sometimes argue about God's sovereignty. This morning, let's just celebrate it and bathe our souls in its sweetness as we look at divine sovereignty and redemption in human choices and in circumstances. And we begin by looking first at God's sovereignty and redemption. And we're going to look at redemption in general and then redemption in specific. By general, I mean those redemptive acts that have touched us all. And once again, we start at Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed, performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. And if you think about it, you realize it had to be 
this way. All the Old Testament stories about the lamb who was slain to save the people there in Egypt, the ram that was supplied to redeem Isaac, the day of atonement with the animals sacrificed, all of this points to the fact that God, our God had a long-term plan for redeeming human beings involving the sacrifice of the Son of God as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when Jesus went to the cross, no one in heaven was surprised. God himself had written the script. Jesus even foretold it himself many times, and then it played out exactly as planned. Why? Hey, because our God is sovereign. He's got the whole world in his hands. So Peter simply notes here that what had transpired there in Jerusalem was, look at the language, your scripture sheet, the predetermined plan of God. Whose plan? God's plan. It also became the plan of the Jewish leaders, <laughs> interestingly. Long before it was theirs, it was His. Peter again, chapter 3, verse 18, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled by sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. That's our theme for today, sovereign grace. And every time I say sovereign grace, we will respond in unison by saying, should we have the next slide, please? Ah, we don't have that slide. All right. We are going to respond in unison by saying, praise His holy name. Now, you can remember that without a slide. So I say, sovereign grace, you say, praise His holy name. All right, what a reason we have to worship our God. In Acts uh, chapter 4, Peter led the apostles in doing that. And after being released he, uh, from, from prison, he offers a prayer that is concentrated. There it is. Okay, it was in there somewhere. You can take it down now and go to Acts 4.27. After being released, he offers a prayer of praise in, in which he says, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Ponder that. So this is the central act of redemption. Jesus goes to the cross to bear our sins in His body on the tree to pay the price of our transgression. God said it, then He did it. This element of redemption is for us all, and the Lord made sure again that it happened via sovereign grace. Praise His holy name. Then the Lord applies that work of grace to specific individuals. He draws hearts to Himself. He grants repentance and faith. He changes lives, and He builds His church. The apostles did it, yes. But primarily Luke, the author of Acts, wants you to know who is the ultimate cause. At the end of the pivotal second chapter, we read this in verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And again, I ask the simple question, who was doing the adding? It was the Lord. He was the one saving. He was the one growing the church. And then as we go on, it is just so obvious that God is the leading actor in the drama. Peter and Paul, oh, they have supporting roles here, but we get to meet several characters whom God sets out to save and to bring into his church. 
There is the unnamed eunuch in the eighth chapter. He is heading home from Jerusalem down to Ethiopia uh, when the, the God who spoke stars into existence aimed his power and his love right at this man's heart. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, the desert road. So he got up and went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And as the story goes, we learn this guy is reading from the book of Isaiah as he travels. Philip engages him in the passage, explains how Christ is in fact the Messiah, and leads this man to faith in him. So here is one upon whom God has placed electing mercy. He has called him out to be one of his. His name is in the book of life. But God does not therefore sit up in heaven and say, oh my, I hope that by some chance a Christian happens to meet up with my Ethiopian friend. No, no. God sovereignly appoints a messenger to bring the truth to the Ethiopian. He makes sure that his message gets to his sheep. In your case, it was no accident that you met that friend who introduced you to Christ. It was no accident that you attended a certain meeting or went to a certain church or even that you had the parents that you were blessed to have. God was moving billions of events in such a way that you would hear the word of the gospel as you heard it. In the eunuch's case, he sent an angel. And he sent that angel to Philip. He did it out of love for this one man and out of love for everybody that would be influenced by the eunuch and his witness in Ethiopia. God so loved him that he sent his son first and later an angel and then later Philip whom he was told where to go. Verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. God did not even leave Philip to figure out why he sent him to that desert road he made sure Philip found the eunuch. Isn't that marvelous? I, I just think this is super to see our Lord that he loves to execute for each of us who are his a perfect plan that is designed to bring us the word of life. He does not leave it to chance. He made sure because he loves us. This is sovereign grace. Praise his holy name. And then we come to chapter 10. This time we get a name. It is Cornelius, a soldier of Rome who lives in Caesarea, a city on the water. Beth and I and some of you I know have been there. It's uh, a main tour city. If you go to Israel, you'll probably see Caesarea in the uh, presentation at Compass in a couple of weeks. Uh, Cornelius' story is that about 3 p.m. one day, he saw an angel who told him to send messengers to a certain house in Joppa and call for a man by the name of Peter. So he did. God gave Peter a dream as well to convince him that he should go to Cornelius even though Cornelius was an unclean Gentile. So Peter goes. He preaches Jesus. Many there are saved. The church expands. God gets glory because how else could this happen? Had a professor in seminary who had been a missionary among the Muslims and uh, he told the story of uh, a night when he was asleep in the middle of the night and he hears a knocking on his door and he goes to his door about 2 a.m. and uh, he goes to his door and there's a man standing there 
uh, uh, appears to be a Muslim man and uh, looks very weary. And the man told him this story. He said, two days ago, I had a dream that I was to come to this exact address in this exact town because in this house I would find a prophet of the true and living God. Are you a prophet of God? God does this stuff. It is awesome. He isn't just sitting up in heaven awaiting applications for salvation. He is the good shepherd who is seeking and saving those many who are lost. And if you're like the Ethiopian or if you're like Cornelius, if your name is in the book of life, he has arranged for his son to die an unjust death by crucifixion to bear your sin, to rise for your justification. And then he has appointed messengers. Could be pastors, could be parents, could be co-workers, could be television preachers, could be track writers, could be a neighbor, someone to bring the word of life to you where you are. And again, all of this is sovereign grace. Praise His holy name. I love how the author of uh, Acts, Dr. Luke, writes salvation history. He does it from a distinctly God-centered viewpoint, and it's so clear that human decision, whatever role it plays, is secondary to the will of an almighty Savior. Check it out in Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Pisidian Antioch and declared that their ministry focus was going to turn towards the Gentiles. And there we read this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were nice, those who were humble, those who were open, those who were worthy, those who listened closely. No, no. Those who were appointed to eternal life. Passive tense, appointed to eternal life. Clearly not everyone in that audience was, but all who were appointed came to faith. Why? Because of sovereign grace. Praise His holy name. So we see how this works in Acts 16. Paul is preaching in Philippi before a group of women at a riverside, and all the women heard the same gospel message, but not all heard it with saving faith or saving effect. Uh, one woman who did, we know her name is Lydia. And look at how Luke describes the conversion of this woman, Lydia. Chapter 16, verse 14 the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord. He was the one in Acts 2 adding to the church. He was the one sending Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. He was the one sending Peter to Cornelius in Acts 10. He was the one appointing Gentiles in Antioch for faith. And he is the one giving to Lydia the gift of faith. Now, did the Ethiopian, did Cornelius, did Lydia, did the other converts choose Jesus? Sure, they did. But do you think they would ever say, I found God? Or would they be more likely to say, the Lord came and He found me. The Lord saved me clearly. All of this is of sovereign grace. So, praise His holy name. All right, 
that may be the best part of the sermon, but there's more to cover before we get to the Lord's table. We have more to see. People wrestle with this matter of God being sovereign because they, they think that it conflicts with human agency, with human choice. It can be hard for us to understand. How can you have a sovereign God whose will prevails in the affairs of men and at the same time have free human agency, what most people like to call free will? In Romans 9, Paul assures us that this is the right question. If we're asking that question, he lets us know that that's the right question. But he goes on in that chapter to suggest that that question, the answer to it, is above our pay grade. We don't get anywhere in Scripture an intellectually satisfying explanation. What we get is a recognition of both realities. To be true to Scripture, you do not discard free will for sovereignty, and you do not discard sovereignty for free will. You affirm them both. We see this many times in the book of Acts alone, sometimes found together in the very same sentence. Peter, speaking of Jesus, says in chapter 2, verse 23, this man delivered over by, what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So God had planned for him to die on that cross, but he says, you did it and you are guilty. Sovereignty, human agency together, it does not seem to bother Peter. Peter pounds home the guilt of the Jews, in fact, chapter 3, verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. That God turned this inconceivably wicked act into an inconceivably wonderful act does not exonerate anyone. Or I should say, he turned the inconceivably terrible act into something inconceivably wonderful. But it does not exonerate anyone. Then look again at Peter's prayer, chapter 4, verse 27. In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So there was a terrible conspiracy of malice that somehow merges with a wonderful conspiracy of love, both inhabit the same historical space. One more to see, Acts 13, 27. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Wicked men in Jerusalem sought to kill God's Son, and in so doing, they were fulfilling prophecy in amazing detail. They fulfilled the prophetic scriptures which God sets forth, His sovereign plan formed by sovereign grace. Praise His holy name. Our God predetermined their evil acts. It's part of His plan. But they were free evil acts for which the perpetrators are accountable, by which God brought to pass redemption for billions. <laughs> that may blow your mind, 
but it should certainly thrill your heart. We move on now to our final point, the sovereignty of God in circumstances. In the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, Jesus told His followers that they were going to make disciples of all the nations and that He would be with them as they went to do that. That meant He gave them power. That meant He brought them comfort. That meant He energized them with His joy. But it also meant this. He ordered the weather along the way. He ordered every other circumstance to allow them to fulfill their calling. Let's just look at one story that shows this clearly and also I think reinforces the last point about human agency. Acts chapter 27. In this passage, Paul is a prisoner on a ship which is experiencing rough weather at sea and he was greatly, or the weather, the ship was greatly distressed. In, in the distress of the people on that ship, the esteemed prisoner, Paul, speaks to them all in chapter 27, verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now, I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Now think with me here. God said this is what was going to happen. In future prophecy, God gives us a glimpse into, into His decretive will. And so I ask you, is there any way that Paul and these men would not survive this storm? No. God said they would all make it out alive. His plan included Paul getting all the way to Rome. It was predetermined by the sovereign. So what does Paul do? Does Paul say, so you guys just sit back, relax, play a little cards, it'll all work out. No, he doesn't say that. Verse 26, but we must run aground on a certain island. Now how God's promise and this must <laughs> work together, beyond me. But you see it happening here. We must run aground on a certain island. Then verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men, the other prisoners, remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. They were going to throw the prisoners overboard to make the boat lighter. <laughs> but he said, if you throw them out, you can't be saved. I, how does this work with God's promise? Again, I don't know. Verse 42 concludes the story for us. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. The rest should follow, some on planks, others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. And this action is crucial but it was predetermined by God as well, but as His ordained means to bring about His will. His hand was on every circumstance and every man. He controlled the winds. He controlled human decisions so that it happened as planned and promised. Rather than an excuse for inaction, God's sovereignty gives us hope that spurs us to lively activity for Him. 
So consider this, and then we will go to the Lord's table. God has appointed redemption for myriads of myriads, right, of lost sinners. We read of them joining together in the song of the Lamb in Revelation. He will bring it to pass. For us, what does that mean? That does not mean apathy. It means we do the Lord's work with hope because He will open the heart of Lydia. He will get our boat to its destination. He will hear our prayers. So let's look to Him with expectancy as well as an availability that says, here am I, Lord. Send me. I will go for you in response to your sovereign grace. Praise His holy name. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get into the Lord's Supper. If you don't have your elements yet, feel free to slip out and provide what is needed for that for your family. But let's go to the Lord and prepare our hearts to share together at the table of the Lord. So our gracious God and Father, we come to you again thankful so much for what we have read today. We do rejoice in your sovereign goodness, your sovereign grace, for all that you have brought to pass on our behalf through your appointments. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were part of this conspiracy of love that took you to the cross to bear our sins. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you go and you call servants to preach the gospel. And then as they do, you touch hearts and open them to faith and to repentance. Lord, we give you glory and we bless your name. Thrill our hearts even as you confirm the reality of these things in our minds, as we grant, uh, grant us greater understanding of the things we've studied today. But grant us even more so, Lord, hearts that are thrilled by the wonders of your love. Surely, O oh God, we look around, we see so much evil, so much deception, so much lies, but your truth, Lord, has prevailed in our hearts. We pray that it would prevail to the very depth of our being as we remind ourselves now of your sacrifice on our behalf. We confess, O oh God, that we are needy sinners. Come and meet with us around your table and speak peace to our anxious hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.